Have you ever thought about what it was like to observe the feast days in ancient Israel? You know, there's a lot that happened at the Feast of Passover. From the offering of the first fruits, to the days of unleavened bread, to each family setting aside a lamb and sacrificing it. We read about these events, but it's hard for us to understand just how impactful these things were to them. You know, they meant far more to a people of the time than they might seem to us today. You know, just think about a society where every family made their own bread and made their own leaven. You couldn't just run to the store and grab a loaf of bread after Passover like we can. The days of unleavened bread touched their lives more than it does ours. You know, an agricultural economy where livestock holds significant value, they took one of their best lambs, separated it from the rest of the flock, cared for it in a special way for two weeks with their family, and then they sacrificed it. This was a huge event to them. Take a moment and just think about how the ancient Israelites experienced the feast days. And I want to point something out. The things that we experience, the life we live, the things we see and hear, those things often teach lessons that can have a deeper impact than what you might learn from some sermon like I'm giving tonight. Each of the feasts had a different pattern. But the patterns of these feasts taught lessons. Tabernacles is probably the easiest example to explain. So even though this is Passover, I want you to take a moment and think about tabernacles. Think about how the ancient Israelites experienced tabernacles. Think about what it was like. What was, the, what was going through the mind of someone traveling to Jerusalem for tabernacles thousands of years ago? What did he expect? What was the pattern of tabernacles? You know, the pattern most of us today probably expect from tabernacles is a time of going to church. We think of sermons. Most of us probably kind of think of it as an extra long church service. Now to be sure, tabernacles always was a time of learning. The law was to be read at tabernacles. Sermons were preached in this season. We see that in Nehemiah. But the pattern we have in our minds today of what tabernacles is, try as we might, is not exactly what it was designed to be. We may focus today on sermons, but that wasn't the original focus of tabernacles. No, tabernacles was created as a memorial. All the feast days were. You can see that in how the scripture describes the feast days. You know, God uses the word memorial to describe the feast days in Exodus 12, 14, and again in Exodus 13, 9. God gave us tabernacles to remind us of something. Now let me point out how God intended this memorial to work. More than anything else, the pattern of tabernacles in ancient Israel was of a celebration. The entire nation was supposed to get up and travel. They left their work behind. They left their normal routine behind. Everybody, an entire nation, gathered together in one place. And all these people were instructed by God to take a tenth of their income, the festival tithe, and spend it. They were... They were mandated to spend it. So you have all these people on a trip, an adventure, away from their normal work and routine. And you add to that that 10% of an entire nation's income is spent in a single week to buy whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, as it says in Deuteronomy 14, 26. That was the experience of tabernacles. That was the pattern of tabernacles. You know, in the mind of ancient Israel, this was a time of blessing, a time of plenty. Tabernacles was designed to be experienced as a time of celebration. And the celebration, more than any sermon could, was meant to remind us of something. It was designed to remind us we are blessed and to remind us of where our blessing comes from. The festival tithe was designed well with that purpose in mind. You know, when you think of a tithe, the first thing you think of is the tithe we owe to God. But that connection to God naturally comes to mind when, when you think of the second tithe as well, even though this was a tithe that was mandated by God to be spent on us, on our families. Not just for, for necessity either, but for what we desire. Tabernacles was designed to make ancient Israel feel grateful to God. To remind them it is God that provides for us. 
And it's not an ancient Jesus, or it's not an accident that Jesus came to us at Tabernacles as a memorial of God's blessing. It's certainly appropriate that the greatest blessing of all time came to us at Tabernacles. That's the reason we attend Tabernacles, is to remember that. This pattern of celebration, this pattern of blessing, is what God wanted us to experience. More than any sermon, the pattern of celebration was what God wanted at Tabernacles. And there's a pattern at Passover as well, a different pattern, perhaps a little more complex, centered around sacrifice. But there's a pattern that ancient Israelites lived at Passover as well. And these patterns teach a deeper lesson than any sermon can. You know, Scripture often speaks of keeping the law with our heart. Psalms 119.34 says, I shall keep thy law, yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Proverbs 3.1 says, My son, forget not thy law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. In Ezra 7, Scripture talks about preparing our heart to seek the law of God. Verse 10 reads, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Job 22 talks about hearing the law through words, but putting that law in your heart. Verse 22 reads, Receive, I pray thee, the law from his mouth, and lay up his words in thine heart. To truly keep the law, we have to learn to do it with our heart. We need the law written in our hearts, and it's through experience, through living the law, being surrounded by the law on, our da- on a daily basis, that we do what Ezra did. We prepare our hearts. You know, you can point out the law, some, some like the food laws in Leviticus 11. You can get someone to accept that they're still in effect, still binding. But if someone lived all their life eating pork, watching others eat pork, eating pork isn't going to feel all that wrong to him. He may know it's wrong in his mind, but he may not yet feel it's wrong with his heart. That law hasn't yet made it to his heart. He has to prepare his heart first. If he keeps the law and surrounds himself with others that do as well, over time, that experience, that pattern of life will write that law in his heart and it will actually feel wrong to him to do it. Another example is promiscuity. You know, most Christians today know Scripture speaks against promiscuity. Most Christians accept the fact that physical relationships outside marriage are wrong. They know this in their mind, but in their heart, it just doesn't feel all that wrong. We've grown up in a society where the pattern of life does not include that law. We've watched as our friends, our relatives, ignored the law. They've lived together before marriage, as they had physical relationships while dating. And because we've experienced that pattern all around us, all our lives, it just doesn't feel very wrong to so many Christians today. We know it's wrong. We may say it's wrong in the abstract. But we accept it in our daily life because it just doesn't feel all that wrong. Your experience is what prepares your heart. The patterns of your life, the patterns of the life of the people around you are what write the law in your heart. Those patterns of life are what is truly important to teach us. The Bible does say to talk about the law. It says to read it. But it speaks far more often of simply keeping it. Seeing the law play out in our lives and the lives of others is far more impactful, far more important than any sermon can ever be. Sermons and teaching are are there for when the patterns get messed up. When the patterns we are living no longer follow the patterns God gave us. A sermon can become necessary to drive someone to consciously change his actions, to change the pattern. But over time, it's keeping that God-given pattern that actually writes that law in your heart. Our experience, the patterns of life we follow, the patterns we observe are truly important. That's one of the reasons a church community like this one is so important. Surrounding yourself with a godly pattern of life is really, truly important. In our culture today, we lack many of the patterns that God designed for us. And that's the source of so much of the confusion in our trouble and trouble in our society. I want to talk today about one pattern in particular that our culture has messed up. What is a woman? Seems like a simple question, doesn't it? Pretty basic. 
We all know what a man is. We all know what a woman is. The question, what is a woman, has a pretty simple answer. Yet just last year, Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson was asked exactly that question during her confirmation hearings. She couldn't answer the question. You know, think about that. She couldn't answer that question. Looking confused, she replied, I'm not a biologist. And eventually went on to complain she didn't believe there was any simple answer. Sadly, Congress went on to confirm her, and she now sits in the Supreme Court in judgment of the morality of this nation. Sad. The world's gone insane. And as the world around us cuts all ties with the creator of the universe, it becomes all the more imperative that we draw closer to God. And part of that involves checking to make sure we see the world the way God intended us to see it, rather than the way the world has been perverted to be. Have you ever taken a moment to think about the patterns in your mind that define the things around you? You know, what is a man? What is a husband? What is a wife? What is a woman? Now, I'm asking for something a little more than the basic definition. You know, a woman is an adult human capable of producing offspring. It's someone who can have a baby. That's the basic definition. I would have been happy if Supreme Court Justice could have given that basic definition. But I want us to think a little to ourselves a little deeper. What is a woman? How do you expect a woman to think? How do you expect her to act? How is she different from a man? What is the pattern in your mind that describes a woman? Now, I'm not saying this is a pattern that you can easily put down in words. But we all have patterns in our mind, a set of expectations, a mental image that tells us what a man is, what a woman is, you know, what a Christian is, what a church is. There are countless patterns in our mind that define the world around us. And these patterns, these experiences can be very powerful. They have a huge impact on how we act and how we respond toward others. Let me give you an analogy. Anyone who's been to our house knows we have wood floors. And we bought one of these big rugs lay out in the middle of, a, uh, of our living room. Came in the mail all rolled up. And when I unrolled it on the floor, everything lay nice and flat, except for this one corner. That corner curled up. Well, I thought, I'll fix that. I went and got some carpet tape, taped the corner down. The next day I walked into the room, there was a corner, curled up again. Tried to tape it several more times, using more tape each time, being very careful to make sure it was attached well. Always the same result. Curled back up again. Then I started taping it down, setting something heavy on it. You know, I figured it was enough time to finally give up. No such luck. Curled back up every time. Every time I took the weight off. So then I tried curling the corner, you know, underneath and uh, laying something heavy on it, a table leg, a chair. We even parked Kelly's chair on it for a while. <laughs> Figured maybe I could set a new pattern in that corner. But a day after the weight came off, the corner would be pointed back up every single time. I tried stapling the corner down to a board I put under the rug. Staple held, corner curled up around it, just looked pitiful. <laughs> tried ironing it, steaming it. I tried everything. We've had that rug for like four years now. If you walk into my house, be careful you don't trip over the rug. Now, I'm not telling you this story because I hate my rug. I, you know, I'm a little angry at it, but that's not my point. My point is there's a pattern woven into the corner of that rug. For whatever reason, that fabric remembers a shape, and no matter what you do to it, it snaps back to that shape. It returns to that pattern. Same thing happens to us. We have patterns in life that we snap back to. For example, consider something like the Protestant work ethic. It's prevalent for hundreds of years across Northern Europe and the United States. Protestant work ethic defined a pattern of life. You know, it defined what was expected in our work life. It defined a pattern that drove people to productivity. It drove the success of this nation. This was a pattern of life people expected to live by. Men expected to spend a lot of time working. Women expected to spend their days working in the home. We expected ourselves to be productive. And if for whatever reason someone wasn't, there was a lot of pressure to return to this pattern. Your neighbors would expect you to work. 
Someone raised with this work ethic would even feel guilty if they weren't working. You know, a lot of people with this pattern in their minds don't know what to do with themselves when they retire. The expectation of work was a pattern people learned, and throughout their life, they would snap back to it. Same goes for other patterns. What is a husband? What is a wife? There are patterns our culture teaches us of what a husband is, what his responsibilities are, the way he should behave, what we should expect from him. Same goes for a wife. These are patterns we learn growing up, expectations that shape how we act, that become a pattern we tend to snap back to. What is a friend? What does it mean to be a Christian? Think about the patterns in your mind. What are the patterns you snap back to? I bring this up because the traditional biblical patterns of life are under attack. Our culture is redefining expectations on everything. It's tearing down the old patterns that define things and are the, the way they're supposed to be and replacing them with new patterns that often don't work very well. They're often run entirely contrary to biblical patterns. And these patterns are so important. The patterns you believe impact the way you think and act. And there's one pattern that I want to focus on, that pattern that defines a woman. The fact there's a significant portion of our society today that cannot define what a woman is shows you just how far down the road toward anarchy our culture has gone. What is your pattern? What is the pattern of expectation you have in your mind that defines what a woman is? The way you expect her to act, the way you expect her to think and be. What pattern do you snap back to? If you have looked to our culture, if you look to movies or books, if you listen to college lectures, social media, you're repeatedly going to hear a list of adjectives that describe what our culture expects of a woman. A list that describes a pattern our culture wants women to fit. Strong is probably the most commonly used word today to describe what our culture thinks women should be. Strong, independent, assertive, powerful, brave, confident, ambitious. These are the traits our culture pushes women toward. These are the traits we expect of women today. This is a pattern our culture expects women to snap back to. But if you look at these traits, what's the common theme? Strong, independent, brave, assertive. What do all these traits have in common? Ironically, they're all traditionally male traits. And they're all traditionally male for good reason. Which sex is naturally stronger? It's a simple biological fact. Men are naturally stronger than women. And the Bible backs that up. 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Amen. Women are the weaker vessel. That's a simple biblical and biological fact. And when our culture pushes women to strive to be strong, to be powerful, when our, pusher, our culture pushes women to pursue traits that are naturally masculine, it has two detrimental effects. It hurts women and all of society, for that matter, in two ways. For one, it sets women up for disappointment and failure. Because it sets women up to compete at a significant disadvantage. When women compete with men in terms of strength, of power, of ambition, you know, whether you're talking in sports or in the corporate environment, they're naturally at a disadvantage. Strength, assertiveness, aggression are traits men naturally excel at, while women do not naturally tend toward these traits. In the raw physicality of sports, it's very clear. And we're seeing that today as you got these men that are pretending to be women pushing into women's sports. But even in the working world, it also is clear. I'm sure you've all heard the push for women to get into STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. You know, STEM jobs tend to pay, be paying higher, and so it's, it's enticing, I understand. Besides, these are also male-dominated careers, so an equality-minded society just feels naturally that those things have to be challenged. It's easy to understand why our culture is pushing this, given the pattern of equality our culture believes in. But as we watch women being pushed toward engineering and tech, we should realize the natural biological differences between the way men are, were designed and the way women were designed mean women are fighting a steep uphill battle. You know, men, men and women's brains are different. Men's brains contain more gray matter than women's. And that gray matter is what the brain uses for logic and calculation associated with things like engineering and mathematics. 
Women's brains are higher in connective tissue. And that means that women's brains are far more connected than men. The advantage of white matter makes women better at things like communication and multitasking than men are. But the truth is women are naturally at a disadvantage when it comes to areas our culture is pushing them towards. No matter how much they may, that may upset people today, God designed us for different roles. Men were just, are just naturally better at things like spatial reasoning and math. They're simply built for it. So when we, when we push women towards STEM, we're, we're not telling them to do something that, that's easy for them. We're, we're pushing them to a disadvantage. We're trying to, our culture is trying to make women the same as men. It's a fact is it, it, it sets women up for a disappointment. It's no wonder that women suffer from so much depression today. It's no wonder so many women today are frustrated with the world. Our culture has set them up to be something they are not naturally equipped to be. Our culture has set up women for failure. But there's a greater harm done to women as well and to the rest of society. When we push women toward the natural traits of men, not only do we set them up to fail, but worse, we lose sight of the traits that women naturally excel at themselves. We in the society as a whole devalue women and everything they naturally have to offer. And by doing that, we lose the benefit of what women were intended to bring to society. I'm going to point back at that verse. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now notice, Scripture says we are to honor the wife as the weaker vessel. It doesn't say dishonor. It doesn't say disrespect. It says honor. You know, I think a lot of us read that verse, and it's easy for us to think in terms of pity rather than honor. We live in a culture that values independence. Our culture values the natural masculine traits. Our culture looks at the weaker vessel and sees less value. It sees no value in being weaker. And living in this culture, it's easy to read that verse as if it said, give pity to the weaker vessel. But it doesn't say pity. It says honor. Weaker does not mean less valuable. You know, fine china is weaker than plastic plates. It's fragile. Fine china will break much more easily than any plastic plate. Yet fine china is of far more value than plastic plates. And the delicateness of fine china actually is part of its value. You know, scripture tells us the weaker vessel is owed honor. The natural traits of women, the traits women excel at, are of great value to us all. They're worthy of honor. Our culture doesn't value traditional women. But as Christians, we should value women the way God designed them to be. Amen. And for men, there are lessons to learn from the things women are good at. The absence of traditional women in our culture has also changed the way men act. This modern pattern for women actually perverts the natural male pattern as well. The title today is The Power of Women. Now, I know that word power is one of those words I was talking about. It refers to a naturally masculine trait. And I apologize for using it. But in a society like ours, which is so focused on independence, we value the masculine traits so much and the feminine so little, I had to find a word to convey the meaning of value. A better word probably would be influence, the influence of women. But the word influence just doesn't sound as valuable to us as the word power. Anyway, I want to tell you our culture has lost sight of the natural power of women, the natural way that women influence the world around them. We've lost sight of the natural value of women. We push women to be strong, to be independent and assertive like men. But the natural power of women does not lie in strength. It does not lie in being assertive or competitive. It actually lies in embracing the role God made for women. The natural power and influence of women lies in embracing the traits that God made women naturally excel at. And when we lose sight of the natural feminine traits, it harms us all, including men. I want to make a point here. Women serve a naturally influential role in society. But the natural feminine influence is nothing like the natural male influence. You know, if you watch a movie today... You're going to see a scene 
where a 95-pound woman beats up a huge 300-pound thug almost every time in every action movie. It's going to be in there. That's standard today. The pattern our culture pushes a woman is dominating the world around them through strength. But that's a caricature because it's a naturally masculine role that's been applied to women. Men tend to influence the world around them through strength. They cut down a tree and they build a house. They engineer a bridge. They wield a sword and change the world through force of arms. That's how men interact and influence with the world around them through force. But while that's the male pattern, there's another pattern, a more traditionally female pattern. If you look back at the old fairy tale of Beauty and the Beast, you see a different pattern. It's a naturally feminine pattern of a woman influencing, of a woman changing a man for his own benefit and for the benefit of everyone around him. Now, in the pattern of Beauty and the Beast, she doesn't dominate the man. She doesn't force her will through strength. It's not her assertiveness that changes him. She changes him through much more feminine means, through her love, through her faithfulness. And that pattern is not just a fairy tale. Let me read 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Do you see that? The Bible tells us that a wayward husband can be changed, can be won by the conversation of the wife. Now, the word conversation today means talk to us, but what it meant to the translators here was her lifestyle, her behavior. Regardless, the point of this passage is a woman has influence, has power to change her husband. Again, it's important to note she does not do this through domination. It's not a demand she makes. It's not some sort of ultimatum, change or I'll leave you. The first part of the verse urges wives to be in subjection. It's clear that, that she's in subjection. But in fact, it's actually through the subjection, through the behavior of the wife, that she's able to change her husband for the good. You know, real world facts bear this out. You know, auto insurance companies drop their rates when a man gets married. Because statistics show that married men drive more responsibly than unmarried men. Employers know men are more likely to stay at a job if they're married. Statistics show married men are more likely to pay their debts than single men. You can go on. Women have a tremendous amount of natural power, of natural influence on the world around them, and especially on their family. Now, that influence can be both good or bad. If you read the book of Proverbs, one of the central themes of the book of Proverbs is the power of women to either build a family up or tear it down. And across 31 chapters, Proverbs talks about the danger of the strange woman eight separate times. It also tells us a contentious woman is like a continual dropping in a very rainy day. It tells us more than once it is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a white house. And it says it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. Again and again, Proverbs makes very clear the power of a woman to make a family a battlefield. It's clear women have the power to destroy a family. But then in the 31st chapter, in the culmination of Proverbs, we are shown the reverse. We are shown how valuable a good woman's influence is to a family. How her husband and her whole household comes to trust in her. How she works tirelessly for the family's benefit. How her advice is welcome wisdom to her husband. How she raises the reputation of her husband or family to everyone around them. Proverbs 31 shows us just how valuable the influence of a good woman can be. Good women make men better versions of themselves. Good women bring value to the world. Let me point out a few times in the Bible where women played a key role in the history of the world. Where a feminine power shaped the outcome of the world. And then I want to concentrate on one conversation, look more closely at how a natural feminine power works. And I want to warn the men to pay attention too. This is important for men as well because in our relationship with God, we stand in the position of his wife. And we relate to God from that position. Our culture discarding the natural feminine virtues has gone a long way to disrupting modern Christianity's relationship with God. Okay, so the first biblical story I want to point, or talk about 
shows a woman shaping the world is the story of Esther. You realize we would not be here today. You and I would not be here today if it were not for the influence, the power that Esther wielded. Israel, our ancestors, were saved by the power of Esther. This was a real-life story of Beauty and the Beast. You know, King Ahasuerus was a true beast. He was willing to brutally kill off an entire nation of people simply on the word of a man with a personal grudge. Haman comes to the king, basically says, the Israelites are bad people. King Ahasuerus says, okay, here's the money you need, here's the men you need, go ahead and kill them. Now take a moment and think about how Esther changed the path of history, of how Esther saved Israel. She didn't do it through strength. You know, Persia was the strongest nation on earth at the time. The king had written the destruction of Israel into the laws and it could not be changed. There was no one strong enough to change the outcome through force of arms. No one could have put the point of a sword to the king's throat to alter his decision. Strength was useless here. But Esther didn't use the natural male trait of strength. Esther accomplished something strength could not do. She turned the path of a nation. She turned the path of history. The feminine power of Esther turned King Ahasuerus from a beast who would destroy Israel to a champion who would defend Israel. If you would, turn to John chapter 2. Now let me show you another story. I want you to think about how difficult it is to change the mind of God. Again, you can't change the mind of God through force. No one is strong enough to force God to change his mind. You can't do it through assertiveness. I don't care how much you demand, God will do as God wants. In fact, God demand, God, or demands are more likely to turn God against you, not for you. You don't demand things from God. Yet look closely at the beginning of John chapter 2. Beginning of verse 1. In the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. So we all know the story, right? Jesus and his disciples go to a wedding in Cana, and the host runs out of wine, and we all know how Jesus turns the water into wine. But before he does, there's a question as to if he's going to do it at all in the first place. Mary asks Jesus to help, but Jesus tells her, Mine hour is not yet come. Do you realize the quandary Jesus was in here? This was Jesus' first public miracle. He knew the moment he did this, Everything was set in motion. And Jesus says it was not yet time for this to start. This was not God's plan at this moment in time. Yet Jesus relents and turns the water into wine. Scripture doesn't go into detail, letting us see the discussion. But the fact is Mary was able to change the course of history, to change the mind of God. God changed his timetable because Mary requested it. Now there are only two other instances I can think of where Scripture records someone changing the mind of God. You know, Abraham did, when God comes to see him in Genesis 8, chapter 18, they were discussing the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. God planned judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, but Abraham talked with him and got God to agree to spare the cities if there were a remnant of at least 10 righteous among them. There weren't, the cities were judged, but Abraham did get God to agree. The other time is in Exodus 32, when God was angry with Israel for their idolatry, and he said he was going to destroy them. Moses speaks with God, and verse 14 says, The Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Now, that's pretty lofty company. There's only three times recorded where mortal men have changed the mind of God. Abraham, Moses, and the mother of God, Mary. And if you'll notice, each instance had nothing to do with strength, nothing to do with demands or aggression or assertiveness. So let's go to 1 Samuel 25. In 1 Samuel 25, we have Abigail's confrontation with King David. I want to read over what Abigail says and look at how she convinces the king of Israel. To change his mind because Abigail's words reveal a different pattern of confrontation than we're used to today. This is a feminine pattern as opposed to a masculine pattern. Now to set the stage, remember, King David had been insulted by Abigail's husband. 
Nabal had refused to give David men what he owed, and he blatantly denied the God-given authority that King David held. To put it bluntly, Nabal had committed treason, and King David was coming to kill Nabal and his entire household. That's the background leading up to this point. Abigail hears what's happening, intervenes with David, beginning in verse 23. And when Abigail saw David, she hasted and lighted off the ass and fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me, let this iniquity be. And let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience and hear the words of thine handmaid. Let not, my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, even Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men or my Lord whom thou didst send. Now stop a second. How does Abigail begin the confrontation with David? And again, remember this is a confrontation. David and his men are armed, marching with intent to kill Abigail's entire household. And Abigail begins this confrontation with humility, with contrition. She accepts the blame and allows it to lie on her. In verse 28, she again says, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid. That's humility. To accept blame when it actually wasn't anywhere near her fault requires a great deal of humility. So remember that trait, humility. Abigail begins with humility. And take a moment to think about how often confrontation in our culture is met with humility. You know, in politics, on the street, even in church, how often do, do people meet their adversaries with humility today? We don't today, but Abigail did. Continuing in verse 26. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, seeing the Lord hath withholden thee from coming to shed blood, and from avenging thyself with thine own hand, now let thine enemies, and they that seek evil to my Lord, be as Nabal. And now this blessing which thine handmaid hath brought unto my Lord, let it even be given unto the young men that follow my Lord. I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fighteth the battles of the Lord, and evil hath not been found in thee all thy days. Yet a man is risen to pursue, pursue thee and to seek thy soul, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord, the, the, the Lord thy God, and the souls of thine enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. Okay. We also have respect, reverence. Abigail treats King David with a great deal of respect. Amen. She praises him and notes his devotion to God. This is Abigail's adversary, and yet she treats him with reverence. And again, in contrast, think about how our irreverence our society is today. From politics to family life, when people are in contention, reverence is non-existent. People today insult their adversary. They don't praise them, but Abigail did. And verse 30. And it shall come to pass when the Lord shall have done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning thee, and shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel, that this shall be no grief unto thee, nor offense of heart unto my Lord, either that thou hast shed blood causeless, or that my Lord hath avenged himself. But when the Lord shall have dealt well with my Lord, then remember thy handmaid. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. And blessed be thy advice, and blessed be thou, which hast kept me this day from coming to shed blood, and from avenging myself with mine own hand. For in very deed, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, which hath kept me from, back from hurting thee, except thou hast hasted and come to meet me, surely there had not been left unto Nabal by the morning, like any that pisseth against the wall. So David receiveth of her hand that which she had brought him, and said unto her, Go up in peace to thine house. See, I have hearkened to thy voice, and have accepted thy person. Okay, in addition to humility and respect, King, King David tells us what Abigail asked of him was actually for his own good as well. And this was Abigail's intention. She says she wanted to prevent David from committing sin or committing offense against God, from causelessly shedding blood. Abigail's request was not self-serving. Abigail sought the benefit of others. She sought the benefit of her husband, 
She sought the benefit of her household. She also even looked out for the benefit of, of the person that she was essentially with her adversary, King David. Abigail's pattern was not a pattern of domination. It was not a pattern of independence. She wasn't form or fighting for herself. Abigail's pattern was a pattern of submission. She worked for the benefit of others. So Abigail's request of King David is marked by humility, respect, and a goal that includes the benefit of others, including the benefit of King David himself. And that request accomplished what strength and demands could not. Abigail changed the path King David was on. She could not have done that with force. She could not have done that with demands. Abigail's feminine pattern accomplished what the modern feminist pattern never could. Abigail turned the path of a mighty king. And if we look back at Esther, we see the same elements in her interaction with the Persian king. You know, she was entirely respectful at all times. She risked her life for the good of others. As she said in Esther 4.16, if I perish, I perish. That's humility. She wasn't seeking her own benefit. She was actually risking her own safety. She was willing to give her life to seek the benefit of others. This is a traditional pattern of female power and influence, a humble, respectful submission to the good of those around her. That's the traditional pattern of women. I'm not saying it's very common among women today. Our culture has taught a different pattern, and that pattern has pretty much wiped out the old pattern. The pattern most women snap back to today is a broken pattern of feminism. The fact is most, most of both women and men today are proud, irreverent, and selfish. But what Abigail and Esther show is the traditional pattern of women. Historically, women have been homemakers, caretakers of the family. They lived as helpmeets to their husbands. So humility, reverence, and subordinating their will for the good of their family was their natural path, their, their natural pattern. Men, as the protectors and providers, naturally fit a different pattern. You know, you don't enter war with a humble admission of guilt like Abigail did. You don't work for the benefit of your uh, business competitor. Men's pattern is naturally different. It should be. But it takes both patterns to make a healthy society. By virtually eliminating the traditional biblical pattern of behavior for women, our culture has also eliminated the primary example of these traits from our society. The natural influence of women on society is gone. Our culture has robbed us of the natural power of women, and it's left us with a society that's much more coarse, much more arrogant, much more self-centered. When you look around, how much humility do you see in our society? There simply isn't much. You certainly don't see it in our leaders. You don't see humility in our heroes. You rarely see humility portrayed in our books or movies. No, our heroes, our characters, and our stories are portrayed as strong and assertive and proud, not humble. Even in churches today, there's very little humility to be found. You don't see churches examining themselves to find their own sin. You don't see modern Christians looking to God's law to find the sins in their own lives. In our culture, we like to lay blame on others. That's what we do. We don't blame ourselves like Abigail did. When you look at our culture, you also don't see respect. You don't see reverence. From politics all the way down to the average family, there's, there's a general irreverence and anger towards others. Historically, society revered the natural pattern that women say, set. You know, in the past, the presence of women brought with it a degree of civility. The frontier towns of history were often lawless places until the women arrived. When the women got there, so did law and order. So did civilization. There was a time when it was taboo to even say an off-color word in the presence of a woman. But that's gone now. Today, you go to the grocery store and you see a mother's own children cursing her and the mother cursing the children right back. There's no reverence in our culture anymore. How often do we see people working selflessly, subordinating their will for the benefit of others? The civilizing influence of women is gone today. Now, the absence of this feminine example is hard enough in society. The loss of the example of biblical womanhood has done tremendous damage to our culture. There's, there's not much we can do about that, I'm afraid. 
Our culture is cutting its last ties with God and bringing judgment down in society. My point today is we need to examine ourselves. We need to examine our own worldview, our own patterns, because the patterns we witness in the world will impact us. The patterns we live impact the people around us. They write the law in our hearts. I want to urge us to honor that original God-given pattern of a woman, a humble, reverent helpmeet. Now, a lot of people might think this is not really that important. They might think of the pattern of behavior for women as just, it's a personal choice, not really that big of a deal. But I want to make clear the traditional God-given pattern for women is truly important. You know, it really needs to be held up by society and honored. The role women play in society is truly impactful and important. The traditional pattern for women is actually foundational to society. The change our culture has made to that pattern has a lot of consequences. Let me just give you one example. You know, almost every nation in the world today is worried about the birth rate. They're worried about things like the collapse of social safety nets, labor shortages, debt service, and so on, all because we're not having enough kids. It's a real worry. Nation after nation is doing all kinds of things to encourage women to have children. You know, Italy is giving away free land to anybody who'll have children. The nation of Hungary, if, if you're a mother of four or more in the nation of Hungary, you are tax-free for life. But nothing is helping because the cause is the modern pattern we've set for women. The pattern our culture has set for women is to be independent, which means pursuing education and a career, and that means later marriage or no marriage at all. In the 50s, the average age of marriage for women was 20. Today, it's 28. Now, that might not seem like that much, but that's a third of the childbearing years. You know, that, that is the difference between a cult or a pattern that prioritizes marriage and a pattern that prioritizes independence. This is a serious problem. You've probably heard about the coming insolvency of Social Security in our own country and the problem that the entire nation is having finding enough labor. Those are direct results of our low birth rate. What's, what's happening is we're facing the generation where there hasn't been that many children. The Prime Minister of Japan is actually warning that his nation is on the brink of no longer being able to function. He's saying Japan is facing, and this, these are his words, societal collapse, because there are simply not enough younger people to take care of the nation's basic necessities. The shift in the role of women is literally shaking the foundations of civilization. Women play a very important role. Women living a godly pattern is literally foundational to civilization. There's a reason scripture instructs us to honor the godly role of women as the weaker vessel. And I want women to realize the power that's contained in that godly pattern, that pattern actually works. That pattern works where strength won't. It works where demands and anger won't. The godly pattern for women is a pattern that can change the path of kings. It's a pattern that gives the wife a tremendous amount of influence in her family. You know, the modern feminist pattern doesn't work. Strength and independence in women doesn't lead to power and influence. Just look at families today. When wives try to lead, when they compete with their husbands for dominance, it leads to strife, not harmony. When wives make demands, when they throw down ultimatums, it leads to resentment, not happiness. Modern families are a mess, from high divorce rates to more and more couples simply avoiding marriage altogether. Modern families are examples of dysfunction. Modern families are examples of women getting, are not examples of women getting the relationships they want. Real influence, the real power of women lies in the godly pattern of humility, reverence, and submission. Instead of competing for control, instead of fights and resentment, humility and reverence hold real power. Instead of pushing for what she wants, instead of the goals that center on self, a godly woman seeks goals that align with the goals of her family as a whole. She makes her goals a subset, a submission of the family's goals. That's where her power truly lies, in humility and reverence and submission. That's the path that gives her influence in her home. 
And men, our culture's destruction of the female pattern also changes us. You know, we have to realize the two patterns balance against each other. In a society without a godly feminine pattern, the pattern of men also becomes perverted. In a society that pushes everyone to be independent, where does that leave leadership? You know, in a society where everyone is pushed to be strong, where does that leave the provider and protector? The natural masculine role is destroyed in the absence of the natural feminine role. As a culture, we wonder where the leaders are. Why is it so hard to find good leaders? Well, the reason is our culture tells us no one should be followers. We wonder why men of today are so irresponsible. Where are the providers? Where are the protectors? But is it any wonder in a culture that tells women to be independent and strong? They don't need a provider and protector. The destruction of the traditional feminine pattern has laid waste to the traditional masculine pattern. The man who happens to be strong today tends to be strong only for himself. He's not a provider for others. He's not a protector of others. The modern male pattern has become self-focused and selfish. And men also have to realize these natural feminine traits, humility, reverence, and submission, do not come easy to men. As men, our natural pattern pushes us towards strength and assertiveness. So the loss of the godly feminine pattern in our society is particularly harmful to men because we don't come by those traits naturally. Men today are left to tend toward pride and callousness rather than humility and reverence. Now, men need to meet the world through strength. That's true. Confronting an enemy in war or dealing with a competitor in business needs to be met with strength. That's how it must be. That's how it should be. But in dealings with our family, in dealings with the body of Christ, even in dealings with the outside world, too many men today have gone beyond a pattern of strength to a pattern of arrogance and callousness. We think too much of ourselves and too little of others. We're proud. We're too quick with insults. We're too quick to label someone who disagrees with us as either stupid or evil. Men have been heavily damaged, missing out on the godly feminine example. You know, Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. That's a lesson that's been lost in our culture. Amen. Men, we need to learn to be kind with our words. We need to learn to show respect for others. Philippians 2.3 says, In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than, our, than themselves. Amen. Think about that for a second. Do we do that? When we meet someone on the street, do we esteem them better than ourselves? Or do we dismiss them as ignorant as below us? Too many men do that. Do we esteem our wife as better than ourselves? Remember, husbands, we are instructed to love our wife and to honor her. Do we treat our wife with great honor? Do we esteem her better than ourselves? We need to strive to do that. Proverbs 31 talks about the great value of a godly wife's wisdom. Do we value our wife's opinion? Do we seek her wisdom? Do we listen? Do we consider what she has to say? What, ha what she has to ask? You know, Proverbs tells us her thoughts are valuable to us. Both men and women should look back to the godly pattern of a woman. We need to honor that pattern. We need to repair, prepare our hearts and live that pattern. We need to write that pattern in our heart. And not just because it would make our families work so much better. Not just because that example would make the world so much better. We need to honor that pattern because the body of Christ is the wife of God. In our relationship with God, we need to exhibit that same feminine pattern of humility, reverence, and a submissive will. All of us, both men and women, need to reject the pattern that the world pushes. We need to embrace the pattern God gave us. All of us, both men and women, need to relate to God as Abigail did to David. How humble are we when our culture gives us so few examples of true humility to learn from? We need to rebuild that example. We need to work on humility. How often do we truly examine our own lives and admit the sins that we, com that we commit? You know, humility is a necessary backbone of Christianity. Pride can prevent a relationship with God. 
What about the goals in our life? Are our goals more money, more luxuries for ourselves? All of us, both men and women, need to work on our submission on making our goals a subset of God's goals. The feminine example of tailoring her goals to fit within the goals of her husband should be the example that we look to as we set our goals in submission to the goals God has for us. These are the lessons our culture sorely lacks because our culture has abandoned the traditional fem feminine example. What is a woman? God meant her to be a shining example of humility, reverence, and submission, a homemaker, a helpmeet. This world is sorely missing that example. You know, I am so glad that we have some of the few examples left here with us. Ladies, I want to thank you. And I want you to realize the impact that your example has on all of us. When you follow the God-given pattern for women, you not only influence the world around you, you also teach us all the, some of the deepest lessons of life. I pray we hold on to that godly, godly pattern and honor it. Thank you.